It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. It's not often that the heads of MI5 and the FBI stand up together to address the public. So when they recently did that, in order to issue an urgent warning, we thought we'd better sit up and listen. The most game-changing challenge we face comes from the Chinese Communist Party. We need to talk about it. We need to act. In recent years, we've seen China use the full gamut of spying tricks, from hacking and cyber surveillance to influence operations in Parliament. MI5 today issued this alert to parliamentarians. They were warned Ms Li had been working with an arm of the Chinese Communist Party to covertly interfere in UK politics. How did China become the greatest threat to our national security, according to Western intelligence agencies, and who and what are they targeting? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, China's new spy army. In the Cold War, it was all about the moles, the insiders who were passing on state secrets. It was only 15 years ago that the Russians revealed how Britain was still conducting dead drops in Moscow. Their Russian sources would walk along a road and suddenly stop and dawdle while transmitting information into an electronic receiver hidden inside an innocent-looking rock. Later, a British spy would wander up and casually pick up the rock and take it away like a giant memory stick. It could have been the plot of a John le Carré novel. When you're stealing information by hacking, it may be a more technical process, but the methods are just as intriguing. One of the more bizarre hacks I came across was against an American oil company. I was told that they used to frequently order in General Tsao's chicken from the local Chinese takeaway. And the hackers who wanted to get into the systems of this American oil company hacked into the digital menu of the restaurant and they put malware in the menu so that when the software engineers at the oil company clicked on the menu to order their normal lunch, they got a lot more than a soggy chicken. 
My name is Ian Williams. I'm a journalist and author. I've worked for many years as a foreign correspondent for Channel 4 News and then the American network NBC. A lot of that time was in and out and some of it living in China. Ian has also written about China for the Sunday Times and has a new book out next month. Fire of the Dragon, China's New Cold War, which looks more at China's behaviour internationally and asks the question, well, if this isn't a Cold War, then what is it? For a lot of people coming to this, you know, we've heard an awful lot since the Cold War, really, about fears around Russia and Russia being the great adversary. But that does seem to be changing. You know, we keep hearing the heads of MI5 and the FBI warning that actually China is the main threat. When did China become the biggest global threat to the West? I think those with a bit more foresight and vision have recognized this for some years, especially since Xi Jinping became a Communist Party leader. For those who had watched China, watched Xi, looked at his vision, looked at what he was doing in China and elsewhere in the world, it was pretty clear that we had on our hands a dangerous adversary and somebody that was taking the country in a direction that was very threatening. And tell us a bit more about that. You know, for people who haven't been watching it, what was it about Xi Jinping coming to power that changed the course that China was set on? I think two main things. One is internally, where he tightened control considerably, inserting the party more thoroughly into every aspect of daily life and cracking down on dissent quite brutally. Internationally, he has asserted China much more forthrightly and much more aggressively. He has built what I describe as a surveillance state within China to underpin his rule, the sort of state that we haven't really seen before. It is so uh, wide-ranging in terms of the way the population is surveilled, the way it is controlled, the way social media has been weaponized. And I think parallel to that has been an international machine, I'd, I'd call it, uh, of cyber espionage, which has been hoovering up secrets on an enormous scale and uh, complemented by an attempt to buy influence in a way, a manner and a scale also that we haven't seen before. And although Russian brutality is something which is very visual, which is very much in our face, which is something that we're very much more aware of because of Ukraine, I think it is now dawning, particularly on the intelligence community, that the middle and long-term threat is predominantly going to come from China. It's interesting that they're doing it on two fronts, both domestically and internationally. I mean, just talk us through how extensive that surveillance state is. I mean, if you were in China now, on a normal day, on a day-to-day basis, in what ways are you being watched? I think you're being watched in just about every way, offline and online. It's interesting, if you look at the COVID app that was introduced in China, which was called the Traffic Light app. In Shanghai, life is going back to normal. But caution remains high and new tools are being used to avoid a second wave of infections. 
QR codes have now become the passports that allow Chinese people to move around. This collected an enormous amount of data, not only on an individual's health status, but on their location, on their contacts, all sorts of information. The precise cocktail we don't know because it was never revealed. The precautionary measures are reinforcing the Chinese state's surveillance. After analyzing the code of one of these apps, this journalist found that once registered, the user's data was handed over to the police. It gave people a color, red, orange, green. And depending on that color, it influenced your ability to travel. Within the last couple of weeks, protesters who were trying to get to the capital of Henan province to object about a, a bank scam were blocked from traveling when their health app suddenly turned red to prevent them from going. So these apps were being manipulated. And a lot of the technology that was introduced during COVID is now being adapted for more wider surveillance and will outlive COVID. But in terms of what's being done, I think it's multifaceted. You're seeing everything from extremely sophisticated cameras, not the sort of dumb cameras that we sort of are very familiar with here in Britain, which re simply record what's going on in front of them, but cameras which are connected to software that is able to recognize people by their face, by the way they walk, even by their emotions in, in some cases. These cameras are everywhere, as are devices that can track telephones, combine this with information from social media, people's contacts, people's movements, people's interests, and then an enormous amount of personal data, including DNA. This machine has been hoovering up this data on a massive scale, and now China is looking at ways to bring this together, to coordinate it for a systems of, of control that is quite chilling. So clearly that's what's happening domestically. How much do we think the Chinese government are able to see of our behaviour, of, of what we're doing? How much of their surveillance is already in operation in places like Britain? The answer is we don't know, which in some ways is more worrying. The intelligence agencies here have expressed concern about the adoption of what they call smart cities technology. This term covers an array of devices, whether it be sensors or cameras um, or other network devices, which supposedly will make our cities more livable and safer. But in the Chinese sense, these are intricately wound up with surveillance and control. And Britain has been buying an enormous amount of technology from companies like Hikvision, companies like Huawei, which make up this smart city infrastructure. Hikvision cameras are used extensively by British local authorities, by schools, by hospitals. And MPs have been pushing quite hard for them to be excluded, for them to be restricted, because they have been warned by the security services that there is a danger of data theft, of surveillance, of espionage. But so far, the government has resisted curtailing the activities of, for instance, Hikvision, which is the biggest surveillance camera company in the world. I've got to ask, because with so much of China's influence in places like Britain, a lot of it is 
quite speculative. We suspect that they're trying to access parts of the infrastructure. We're not quite sure how much access they already have. Why is it that we're so worried about it? Why is it that we don't trust China? I think this really lies in the rise of Xi Jinping. There's been a sea change because there was for years a sense that engagement with China was good, that it would improve everybody's economic situation, that politically it would make China a more democratic, a more liberal place because the richer you become, so the argument goes, the more rights you expect and you demand, and that with China's newfound wealth would come a more openness and perhaps a more liberal society. In fact, China's actually moved in the opposite direction to that, has become a far more repressive place and far more aggressive and belligerent internationally. And I think that this has come as a wake-up call. It's made people look more closely at the relationships they have with China. And there are numerous proven examples, Lithuania, Australia, individual companies, of where China has used trade, used investment, used market access as means of coercion to get countries to do what it wants to do or say what China wants them to say and to not criticize them in other areas. And this has become routine. We hear about wolf warrior diplomacy, which is where Chinese diplomats have effectively abandoned diplomacy in, in favor of threats and abuse. And I think that if we go back just four or five years, when David Cameron was talking about making Britain the most open place for mm. China, China's best friend in the West, the British economy is probably more open to Chinese investment than any other economy in the world. We welcome Chinese investment into our nuclear industry, Chinese investment into our airports, uh, Chinese investment into utility companies like Thames Water. We're very open, very welcoming. And it's astounding to think now that as part of that, China was invited into Britain's nuclear power program, persuaded to invest in two reactors on the promise of building its own on the Essex coast. And now, of course, they're scrambling to try and find a way of removing China from those power stations. And it's incredible to me that that was even possible. And, you know, as you said, when David Cameron and George Osborne were running the economy here, there was a real effort to bring China in. And that was still under Xi Jinping. Have we been quite slow in this country to understand the threat? I think we've been very slow. And I think the reason we haven't understood it a lot is because we haven't wanted to understand it. I think British policy on China, as far as it's possible to identify a British policy on China, has been characterized by greed and naivety. I think it was always possible to identify what Xi stood for and where he was going and the sort of direction China was going in. But for a long time, we chose not to. And now we're seeing the dangers of dependency. And I think a lot of people look at Russia and they look at what's going on in Ukraine and the issues and the problems created for Western Europe by a dependency on Russian oil, on Russian gas. And they think, well, if you look at China and even even greater dependencies on China, it's quite chilling the likely impact if there is a breach 
with Beijing, and as there may well be if you see a Chinese move against Taiwan or China chooses to move more closely to Russia. And I think there's a belated recognition that uh, dependency on any tyranny is dangerous, whether that tyrant is sitting in Moscow or or sitting in Beijing. Coming up, the case that shocked Britain's parliament. But first. I'm Larissa Brown, defence editor at The Times. I think I've got the best job there is because I get to travel the world visiting military bases and operations overseas, meet the most interesting troops doing extraordinary things and tell you all about it. We can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. We've been talking about a lot of forms of surveillance that the Chinese rely on that are, are quite technical. They're sort of often almost futuristic. And we're not quite sure how much of an effect they're already having in the West. One example, though, that we have seen recently, which is much more old-fashioned, and we can point to and we can see that it's a firm example, was back in January. MI5 has issued a rare alert about a named individual, warning MPs of a woman who's been working as an agent for the Chinese state and trying to influence British politicians. Christine Lee, a Chinese lawyer living in London, has spent years and hundreds of thousands of pounds trying to interfere in UK politics. And she has managed to rub shoulders with prime ministers, party leaders and other influential figures. MI5, back at the turn of the year, issued what was called an influence alert. And this was because of the activities of a Chinese lawyer, British-based lawyer, who allegedly was funneling Communist Party money 
to MPs in order to try and influence their opinions and their actions towards China. It was an interesting case. I think it wasn't so much of a surprise. I think that this is much more extensive. But I think that they wanted people to be aware that this was going on. And again, for it to be something of a wake-up call. Barry Gardner was the Labour MP who received most of the funds. He was not a significant player on the China front, although he had been in Jeremy Corbyn's shadow cabinet. But it did shed light on this extraordinary operation that China has in order to try and gain influence in its favor. I think one of the intriguing things about Chinese espionage is its sheer breadth, because it goes from the formal all the way through to the informal. It's sometimes called the thousand grains of sand approach. It's a machine for collecting data and information in multiple ways, using multiple tools. And the Communist Party organization, which Christine Lee was allegedly working for, the United Front Works Department, it's called, whose sole purpose is to develop party influence and to target particularly individuals and organizations in business, in academia, to funnel money and favors in order to try and influence their thinking towards China. And they've gained a considerable amount of funding and a considerable amount of support under Xi Jinping, who's described it as one of his magic weapons. Talk us through how exactly it worked. I mean, was Barry Gardner the only MP she was giving money to? Do we know how much money was given? It was in the hundreds of thousands of pounds. There were other MPs, but nobody received as much money as that. I, even Theresa May at the time gave Christine Lee an award. She moved in those sort of parliamentary circles. And it was said that most people were aware that she had official Chinese links, but it was allowed to continue. And Barry Gardner claimed that he was in touch with MI5, that he expressed his concern and they told him just to carry on. In total, she has donated over £500,000 to his office. A big chunk of that has been spent employing staff, including her own son. Christine Lee's son had been working for Barry Gardner, but resigned on the day the alert was issued. Part of the problem here is the law is really not fit for purpose here because we have laws seemingly against extreme forms of espionage, but it's very difficult to get convictions for cyber espionage, and there is not a law against influence peddling. They've introduced one in Australia after they had an enormous issue with Chinese Communist Party entities seeking to buy influence with parliamentarians and other organisations in Australia. Australian authorities are investigating claims a Chinese espionage ring tried to install a spy in a seat in federal parliament. The suspected Chinese intelligence group offered a million dollars to pay for the political campaign of a Liberal Party member to run for the Melbourne seat of Chisholm. One of the reasons that MI5 raised the alarm was to try and make people more aware, to make them more cautious, to make them look out for what was going on, and possibly out of frustration that there wasn't a legal route. They couldn't arrest Christine Lee because she wasn't doing anything that was against the law. Do we have any sense of whether she'd been successful in her influence operation? 
I think the evidence suggests probably not, which is what is fairly extraordinary about it. But I think it does illustrate, to me, it's the tip of a rather larger iceberg. And some of the bigger issues and problems are within the business community and particularly within academia, which has taken research funds, which has engaged in in research tie-ups on on an enormous scale with entities that are are linked to the Chinese Communist Party. From my experience in dealing with British universities and researching my books, they tend to regard any questioning about the sources of their finance as a sort of gross intrusion on academic freedom. And it was no surprise that when McCallum and Ray the MI5 and FBI bosses just recently gave their talk about the dangers coming from China, that it was an audience of business and academic leaders, because I think there is a feeling in the intelligence community that they have not really woken up to the scale of the challenge they face and do not really appreciate what it is they're dealing with. The widespread Western assumption that growing prosperity within China and increasing connectivity with the West would automatically lead to greater political freedom has, I'm afraid, been shown to be plain wrong. But the Chinese Communist Party is interested in our democratic media and legal systems, not to emulate them, sadly, but to use them for its gain. The Chinese government is set on stealing your technology. Whatever it is that makes your industry tick and using it to undercut your business and dominate your market. And they're set on using every tool at their disposal to do it. So there are several fronts that we should be worried about at the moment. There are influence operations like Christine Lee. So there needs to be an awareness in Parliament and amongst people who are approached by wealthy donors with potentially an agenda. There are the universities where we're seeing lots of funding being ploughed in and there are real fears about what effect it has. There is also, which we discussed earlier, the infrastructure problem. I mean, do we think China is already using that to surveil us at the moment? There are two fears. One is of current surveillance, but one is of future potential, especially if relations take a turn for the worse. GCHQ, the government listening station, one of the intelligence branches, do have a unit which examines the technology that Huawei uses to make sure or to try and determine there are no flaws in it, no security issues. They have expressed some concern about the security of Huawei's systems. They've also recognized that These devices, these systems have to have software updates and you don't quite know what's going to be in the software update. Huawei said rapidly evolving technologies present all innovators with security challenges and Huawei always strives to achieve the highest standards to keep their customers safe. The bigger problem, which I think is now more widely recognized, that used to be the fact that people would say, oh, these are private companies. You're talking about Chinese government, but these are private companies. But I think it's now recognized. This is something which McCallum and Ray were trying to hit home. That's the director general of MI5, Ken McCallum, and the director of the FBI, Christopher Ray. 
there is no such thing as a private company in mm. China in the conventional Western sense. Ultimately, they're all beholden to the Communist Party. You know, you can't function otherwise. There are multiple laws in China which require companies to cooperate on national security issues on demand. There's also the reality of the power of the Communist Party. They can't say no. And I think the big fear, and this spreads over all Chinese companies, whether it's Huawei, Hikvision, whether it's BitDance that owns TikTok, is if the Chinese government demands that they provide data, that they spy, that they cooperate, then these companies are not in a position to say no. And in some ways, I mean, I suppose people listening to this who are pro-China, who are possibly Chinese, would probably raise the issue that, you know, in a way, none of this is new. WikiLeaks, for example, showed that America, Britain, you know, we all bug each other. Should we just accept that this is a newly powerful nation doing what the rest of us have been doing for years? It's not new, that's true, but I think it's the scale, the enormity of what's happening, the sheer breathtaking amount of data, information, secrets that are being hoovered up, some informally, but also through an enormous cyber espionage operation of the sort of scale that we haven't seen before. I think that in the 2014, when the Americans and the British government were particularly rattled by the scale of the spying, that Obama and the British government signed what was described as a non-aggression pact with Xi Jinping. We've agreed that neither the U.S. or the Chinese government will conduct or knowingly support cyber-enabled theft of intellectual property, including trade secrets or other confidential business information for commercial advantage. This was supposedly to prevent economic and industrial espionage. Obama confronted Xi Jinping and said, look, everybody spies for political reasons. Everybody spies for security reasons. But, you know, we'd want to draw a line when it comes to stealing economic and industrial secrets and passing them on to your national champions. And I think that that kind of worked for a year or two, but it also misunderstood the nature of Chinese cyber espionage because China never recognized this distinction between hacking for business and economic reasons and hacking for political reasons. It was essentially all the same. And after a year or two pause to essentially reorganize, retool, and improve their methods, they then came back with a vengeance and on a scale which we hadn't seen previously. And I think that's what's particularly rattled the heads of intelligence agencies more recently. It's cleverer than it used to be. It's on a scale we haven't seen before. A couple of examples is there was a hack which they wanted to get to a number of technology companies, and it was done through IT providers as a sort of hopping off point to get to their clients. The UK and European Union have accused China of carrying out a major cyber attack earlier this year. The attack targeted Microsoft Exchange servers and affected over a quarter of a million servers all around the world. Another was the hack of Microsoft, which involved hacking Microsoft Exchange in order to get into the email programs of various companies. And I think that the sheer scale of what was going on and the audacity was what tipped intelligence agencies to go more public because traditionally 
they don't often like to go public on that scale because they're afraid it might reveal some of their own methods, some of their own secrets, some of the ways that they follow bad guys as they would see it around the internet. But the sheer scale of what was going on rattled them to the extent that they felt they really did need to go public. If that is the case, you know, if this is now on an unprecedented scale, what do you think the government should be doing about it? I think they need to wake up to what is happening. They need to recognize what is happening. The first thing is to be aware of the scale of the threat, because I think particularly with China, there was a sense of, yes, it's out there, but there's always been a tendency to see China as something that we can deal with, that China will eventually come round, that China can be engaged. But I think we have to recognize that the scale of what we are now dealing with is so big that our response needs to be more robust and people need to recognize that it is an enormous threat to their businesses, to their universities, to infrastructure. And I think it begins with an awareness and it begins with a discussion of how enormous this problem has now become. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, the journalist and author Ian Willens. Ian's book is Fire of the Dragon, China's New Cold War. The producer today was Edward Drummond. The executive producer is Kate Ford. And sound design was by David Crackles. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow for part five of Last Man Standing our special series into the hunt for the missing journalist, John Cantley.